This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Live podcast, Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. Christy Shriver, and we're here to look at books that have changed the world and that have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. This is our second week discussing that iconic Shakespearean classic, Romeo and Juliet. And per usual, uh, we didn't delve too far into the script in our first episode. Last week, uh, we talked quite a bit about the mysterious life and death of William Shakespeare. Uh, we introduced the city of Verona. We talked about the difference between comedy and tragedy and why this play is halfway between each. We uh, talked through the prologue, or at least we read it, and we discussed the first scene. The main thematic takeaway we featured was this idea that Shakespeare is deliberately drawing for us two extremely young, fairly average teenagers who are going to be forced to rise to the level um, of the heroic because of circumstances not created by them. Uh, and the impetus that pushes them to greatness, if you will, is really, to use a cliche brought to us by Huey Lewis in the news, oh, yeah. the power of love. Am I off course? <laughs> no, it's the power of... No, you're absolutely not off course. That's it exactly. And where we want to drop into the story this week, because this week we're talking... Yes, we're talking politics. Now, I know no one reads Romeo and Juliet to delve into politics, and we'll delve into love and fate and all the rest next week, but there is something very interesting worth mentioning about politics in the play and the importance for leaders to be leaders and for grown-ups to act like grown-ups. Because although this is definitely a love story, And I made the case last week that the beating of the human heart comes through in every line from the love sonnet in the prologue to the epilogue at the end. There is a large emphasis, though, to be noted 
that is not about love between these two main characters. There's the rotten and selfish political world that they're forced to indwell. And what we see in these two teenagers is a strong desire to get out of this rottenness that's turned that Verona has turned into. I heard one commentator call it the Verona disease. So today, as we jump back in, let's look at the grown-up world, honestly, because that is who's watching the play in the globe. They're grown-ups. Well, that's a, a very good point to think about in, in terms of who's watching the play. Last week, you brought up the fact that the men in the audience would be illiterate or the lower classes, uh, but there were also going to be lots of nobility and or rich people that would be watching this. But one thing both of these groups have in common is almost all of them would have been adults. And theaters were not the most savory of environments in that <laughs> I'd day. I'd say not. In fact, they were always being denounced by the church, and sometimes for good reason. And uh, prostitutes were so common that most respectable women who went to the theater wore masks so that people wouldn't know who they were. And, of course, I'm really not totally sure the age ranges of the play attenders, but I would guess uh, that often the youngest people in the theater were likely the boys who were playing the roles of women on stage. Uh, and that's worth mentioning because all the actors were, were male in Shakespeare's plays. So just for context here, Juliet would have been played by a very young boy whose voice probably hasn't changed yet. Uh, so they could be pretty young teens dressed as girls, but boys nonetheless. And Oh, and Christy, this is an aside. But for the history buffs out there, it's kind of uh, interesting. Uh, one scandalous thing that has come to light in recent years is that many of these young boys who played the parts of girls were actually kidnapped. What? They were snapped up on their way to school, and they, they were oh kept in gosh. human bondage for the purpose of playing these parts. And uh, there is a documentation supporting that even Queen Elizabeth herself knew of this practice and had signed commissions allowing oh theaters to kidnap and force young boys to perform under threat of being beaten. Uh, Dr. Uh, Bart Van Ness is the researcher that uncovered this. And uh, However, having thrown out that tidbit, <laughs> I will say oh, man. Shakespeare is on historical record uh, as being completely against this practice. <laughs> And made certain it was public knowledge that all of the child actors at the Globe were apprentices and not slaves, as was happening at the other theaters. Well, go Shakespeare. My gosh, that's horrible and not the direction I thought you were going. I was expecting you to say how the audience, for all its financial inequalities, would have been around the same demographic and age and have looked at these characters as children, not as adults. Uh, well, there is that, too. Um, I did get off on a tangent, and I know you are wanting me to tell you my thoughts in terms of the politics of the play from maybe a historical or a psychological bent. But that aside is interesting. One thing that stands out to me in the prologue especially, uh, but also throughout the rest of Act One, is the line where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. I mean, it's obviously a pun that would stand out to a history teacher and civil has two meanings uh the one that has to do with citizens or uh relating to the legal system but it also means courteous and polite and this polite blood these polite hands are unclean 
and the words have a political side to them. Uh, their politics isn't really very clear to me, and this comes across almost sarcastic to me. Uh, what is never explained in this play is to what these factions are all about. And so I assume it either it doesn't matter or the audience would know what they are. And, and I assume, as with any society, including the American political scene as well as the British, and I'm sure this is true everywhere, um, is that civil society ends up breaking into factions. Oh, yes, even in high school. <laughs> if you remember your American history, George Washington warned about factions and uh, his... Uh, farewell message. And of course, even today, they are the bane of our political system. Uh, but we're not alone. Um, there, of course, was the obvious factions in the Elizabethan era between the Catholics and the Protestants, uh, but also even within Elizabeth's court and Privy Council, there were factions. And what we see here uh, illustrated in Veronian society is typical of every civil, if I may use Shakespeare's sarcastic expression, civil society on earth. We, uh, we're all given the factions. Everyone has taken sides either by virtue of birth or they just choose sides. Uh, it's all about power. And over the course of time, these sorts of things have a tendency to escalate and get out of control until eventually someone gets hurt or oh, many yes. someone's. And so anyway, uh, Verona illustrates why the rule of law is so important and why mobs or people who take the law in their own hands are, are so dangerous. I mean, in a world that's functioning properly, uh, every member of a civil society obeys the law or the agreed upon rules that will govern how people are going to conduct themselves and live together. And even if they're on opposite sides of issues and even if these issues are emotional in nature and they make people very angry and when a society is functioning properly the law is overseen by a rational but humane impartial steward of it and uh, who keeps the uh, naturally forming factions in check as we discussed in our american document series on the constitution and in the healthy society the leaders of each faction um, are interested in preserving peace and do their part to reign in their side. So here we see lapses in leadership and good government from all sides from the very beginning of the play. For one thing, all these young adults have nothing to do. They're just roaming the streets. I mean, thrice they have disturbed the quiet of Verona's streets, to loosely quote the prince. <laughs> Why haven't these community leaders create a world for young men to be actively engaged in something productive in their life? I mean, idleness has been a chief sower of problems always, but the prince here is also a problem. Look at how the prince handles the fighting. Uh, he's arbitrary, and he enforces no real consequences, and three times he's busted them, and what is his reaction to this? The prince threatens to kill them kill them <laughs> a little little overreach <laughs> and uh, then calls the fathers of the two rival factions to his house to discuss the feud and uh he he went from nothing to death uh the prince is not wise uh, i mean there have been no actual consequences for the gentleman in question i mean they're spoiled it's it's like those parents that are always yelling at their kids but never disciplining them and his leadership is, at the very least, reactive and not proactive. And we see in the next acts that the fathers of these families aren't interested in straightening this out either. Well, this is exactly where we drop into Act 1, Scene 2. They are, they've had this pointless brawl in the streets. 
Uh, but before we do that, I do need to introduce the families. When I taught this play, and I haven't taught it for a long time, but when I did, we always struggled with keeping the character straight. Which one was from which family? So I kind of remembered it like this. Juliet is a Capulet, the T. And Tybalt is a rela- relative of Juliet. Mm. He has a T. And then you have Montagu, Romeo. I know that's not how you pronounce it, but that's how I remembered it. And all the O ones go with him. Benvolio, Benvolio, Montagu. Even Mercutio, who they're not, he's not in the same family, but they're friends of Romeo. So you can kind of try to keep, keep which one is the Montagu and which one is Capulet straight. We'll see if I can do that with, <laughs> with that little mnemonic device. Juliet is a Capulet. There, it's a cheer. Well, after our arbitrary but somewhat exciting brawl, scene two shifts away from the outer politics that you're talking about and goes back to what appears to be love, but actually really is nothing more than the politics you're just discussing. Uh, And it's also a fun insight to see how Shakespeare does have something for everyone. The first scene is very action-oriented. It's very vulgar in language with all these boys, you know, talking trash in that sense sounds like a netflix episode (laughs) yes but it ends in a serious tone and the second scene and the third scene there's a lot in them that's light and fun no one's getting told they're gonna die or anything like that here in scene two of act one we see mr capulet being approached by this old guy paris who wants to marry juliet which is gross and seems even to gross out Mr. Capulet because of their ages. Let's read a little bit of those lines and capture the language, if you don't mind. Uh, you can read Capulet, and I'll read Paris. But saying or what I have said before, my child is yet a stranger in the world. She's not seen the change of 14 years. Let two more summers wither in her pride, ere we may think her ripe to be a bride. Younger than she are happy mother's maid. And too soon marred are those so early made. But woo her, gentle Paris, get her heart. My will to her consent is but a part, and she agreed within her scope of choice. Lies my consent and fair according voice. This night I hold an old accustomed feast. Whereto I have invited many a guest, such as I love, and you among the store, one more most welcome makes my number more. At my poor house look to behold this night earth-trending stars that make dark heaven light such comfort do lusty young men feel. So he doesn't seem to say outright no. He just tells him to woo her and good luck with that. I know, right? But notice how that's kind of the same thing that Benvolio told Romeo Look around. He's saying, look around, Paris, just like Benvolio said, look around, Romeo. Woo, but maybe you can find another girl to love. Another point to make, and I think this is really interesting, Rosaline, this girl that Romeo has been pining over from the beginning of the play, is a first cousin of Juliet. So that means she's on Team Capulet, because this is a feud, and we're going to find out that no one wants Romeo and Juliet to be together, but... No one seems to care very much about her. I wonder if she's like the poor cousin or something. I don't know. <laughs> I'm making that up. Anyway, Mr. Cat bought, Mr. Capulet bottom line is having a party, a masquerade ball, of course. And these are famous and an iconic scene. It's set up for Paris to woo Juliet or find another chick. 
Uh, it's a setup for Romeo and Benvolio to crash a controversial party. Benvolio is determined to find a prettier chick for his buddy, and this seems to be a perfect opportunity. You may notice that there's no talk of anyone being in real danger or anyone dying by attending this party, as you might expect if they were really enemies. They're only enemies when it's convenient, it seems, and we know that these two men are out for a prowl, and they're going to hop in at this event. (laughs) Well, when we get into scene three of Act One, uh, we see that Shakespeare makes it a point to, again, reiterate Juliet's age. Uh, This is not something that even an audience member uh, throwing fruit at the set or something like that would, would even miss. In fact, maybe it would cause them to throw the, the fruit because it is a bit out of bounds. And and uh, yes, that was not uncommon in Elizabethan theater. Uh, these theaters really kind of resembled more basketball arenas than modern-day theater houses, but uh, I don't think even in the ruckus that you can miss all the hoopla around Juliet's age. Oh, I can imagine that you really couldn't. I can just see Paris asking for 13-year-old Juliet and some audience member hitting him with the rotten apple, yelling whatever Elizabethan gel when they mean (laughs) too much. But then again, we don't really know. And this is an interesting thing about Elizabethan theater. We really don't know a lot about how they were acted out, so we can kind of make it up in our minds. But speaking of characters, it'd be fun to throw a piece of fruit at. You should meet uh, the caretakers as well as the lovely Juliette Capulet, her mom and her nurse. Let me introduce a literary term here for you, and that term is the term foil, because Shakespeare loves making foils. Now, If you're in school, you think of FOIL as a mathematical order of operations. At least that's what I'm told. (laughs) You couldn't prove it by me. But in the English world, it means characters that are obviously created to be opposites in a fairly distinctive way. We've already seen this once in this play. Benvolio and Tybalt are FOILs, and Benvolio being the good guy and Tybalt, in a sense, being the bad one. But here you're going to see two more, the mom and the nurse. Both of these women seem to love Juliet, at least they should, but notice how opposite they are. One is cultured and beautiful. The other one is crude and bawdy. (laughs) Well, I think there is one more important way uh, when we see these two women. Uh, One of them has an intimate relationship with Juliet, and that's actually the nurse. And then there's the mother, who's quite cold and seems not to know her daughter much, or at least doesn't pity her, although we must assume she does love her daughter. I know. And another funny thing is that Shakespeare makes this nurse so ugly and also lovable all at the same time. And you have to remember, again, she'd been played by a man. I can kind of imagine what this character would be like from the language in the play. I mean, she has four teeth, and she's large, so... You know, and then she talks about putting wormwood on her breast to wean Juliet. It would be all a ridiculous opportunity for some dude dressed up as a woman to have these vulgar, ridiculous hand gestures. And again, an opportunity for fruit to come flying through the air. I don't know. That's how I imagine it. Anyway, the fact is, the nurse makes a couple of very out-of-bound remarks in her monologue about Juliet's sexuality. And maybe it's supposed to be funny. But it's also, at least for a modern reader or a woman modern reader, it's a brutal reminder 
through the mom and the nurse's conversation that women in those days really did view themselves as sexual merchandise or as their daughters as sexual merchandise. What are we going to get for her? What's the political transaction, if you will? And of course, Juliet emphatically says she does not want to get married. And her mother responds by saying, well, I was married at your age. So much for that empathy. Hmm. The nurse tries to tell her that he's good looking. Uh, This funny line. He's a man of wax. (laughs) (laughs) Is that a compliment? (laughs) I think it is. But obviously, it comes down to this nice little metaphor the mom makes at the end when she says this. This precious book of love, this unbound lover, to beautify him only lacks a cover. But then she says the, the line that makes it make sense. That book in many eyes does share the glory that in gold clasps locks in the golden story. So there you go. What's it about? Cha-ching. It's about the money. The gold. <laughs> the argument could be made that Shakespeare is drawing out this point, but maybe that's my arrogance of the presence. Hmm. Uh, well, of course, from there, uh, we fly right into scene four with the boys marching to the party and excited about the uh, potential hookups. I mean, there's a trend that hasn't changed in <laughs> 400 years. I'd say no. There's uh, Mercutio, who's the prince's cousin and Romeo's best friend. There's uh, Benvolio, who we've already met. And there's our hero, Romeo. Romeo, of course, is still pining under love's heavy burden. I do sink. His friends are committed to reassuring him that he can move on. There's all kinds of funny lines. There's this very strange monologue by Mercutio talking about this little fairy called Queen Mab, a character nobody ever heard of before this play or Shakespeare. Uh, Maybe she existed, but she's shown up again and again ever since in lots of other pieces. Apparently, according to Mercutio's little monologue, she's a fairy the size of a gemstone who rides around in a hazelnut chariot doing all kinds of mischief. And one thing that she does is she um, drives into lovers' brains and makes them dream of love. (laughs) Isn't this called Cupid? No, it's Queen Map. Mercutio talks about dreams, saying that they're the children of an idle brain, begot of nothing but vain fantasy, which is thin of substance as the air and more inconstant than the wind. It's an interesting turn of phrase, really, and points us to another motif that we're going to see later on in this play, uh, and that's this idea of dreams. Juliet has just gotten through talking about that she does not dream of getting married. And now Mercutio tells us a lot about what people do dream of. And it's kind of funny. (laughs) Uh, I find it interesting that Shakespeare here is right in line with much later psychoanalytic ideas on (laughs) dreams. Back to Freud. (laughs) There you go. Yeah. In his speech, the dreams, uh, they're like the crazy version of what each person wants. And the soldier dreaming of cutting foreign throats, the lawyer dreaming of money and among other things. I mean, that was a, a funny one. Indeed, because lawyers haven't changed. They still dream. (laughs) I don't know. Well, in scene five, we finally get to the big party. It's a masquerade ball. But unfortunately, we're going to see that Tybalt recognizes Romeo. And of course, Tybalt wants to kill him for being a Montague. Uh, We see Mr. Capulet. And here we don't know if he's just a permissive parent or if really... The feud isn't a big deal, but he tells Tybalt to stand down. 
He's going to say that Romeo, by all accounts, is a nice guy. And he doesn't ask him to leave and, and seems to want him to stay and enjoy the party. And that's true. And what we love about this scene, of course, isn't that, even though that is kind of interesting. But we're going to get to see the back and forth between Romeo and Juliet. Romeo sees her. He's enchanted. We definitely have to read these lines. (laughs) Oh, she doth teach the torches to burn bright. It seems she hangs upon the cheek of night as a rich jewel in an Ethiop's ear. Beauty too rich for use, for earth too dear. So shows a snowy dove trooping with crows as yonder lady or her fellow shows. The measure done, I'll watch her place stand, and touching hers make blessed my rude hand. Did my heart love till now? Forswear at sight, for I never saw true beauty till this night. He never saw true beauty till this night. Greatest pickup line ever. <laughs> it is. Well, of course, he says that actually before Tybalt sees him. But then Tybalt leaves and we get the really famous exchange because they find a way or he finds a way to get to her. And then we're going to see this very famous exchange. If I profane with my unworthiest hand this holy shrine, a gentler sin is this. My lips to blushing pilgrims ready stand to smooth that rough touch with a tender kiss. Good pilgrim, you do wrong your hand too much, which mannerly devotion shows in this. For saints have hands that pilgrims' hands do touch, and palm to palm is holy palmer's kiss. Have not saints' lips and holy palmers too? Ay, pilgrim, lips that they may use in prayer. Oh, then, dear saint, let lips do what hands do. They pray, grant thou, lest faith turn into despair. Saints do not move, though grant for prayer's sake. Then move not while my prayer's effect I take. Thus from my lips by thine my sin is purged. Then have my lips the sin that have took. Sin from my lips? O trespass sweetly urged, give me my sin again. You kiss by the book. (laughs) Well, one thing you can't help but notice is all the religious language here. Well, there is that. Uh, And there's been all kinds of discussion of why this injection of religious language. For one thing to notice, and I do want people to notice this because you don't see this very much in Elizabethan um, anything. Uh, But look how progressive Juliet is. Listen to her. She's 13 and she totally commands this situation. She matches Romeo line by line. She compliments how he kisses. She's commanding. That's not very typical of 13-year-old girls. Even today, you don't think of them (laughs) with all this kissing experience. (laughs) I can tell you right now, having been a 13-year-old and having raised two, even if you do find the boy cute. It's an interesting point to notice, and we're going to see this again later on in the balcony scene, except it's way more prominent there. But there's a larger point. Are we to understand that this love is different than all the hoopla he made over Rosalind? Uh, What makes this different? Is it because now this is holy or this is pure? Remember, love is a deeper theme 
and we've talked about it being a theme, but it's overlaid with politics, ambition, factions, greed. These two children don't care about any of that. It is on purpose, I think, and this is the purpose that Shakespeare now switches from the body humor and he talks about shrines and pilgrims. Pilgrims travel to holy places, to pure places. Oh, this certainly um, isn't the view of marriage typical of Shakespeare's day. Uh, it is probably not the perspective on love. All the other characters are chauvinistic in everything they say about women. Even Romeo had been very sexualized in his aggression towards Rosalind. That's it, exactly. And it's worth noting that in every single scene up to this point, there has been low-brow, guttural sexual humor. It's very suggestive and demeaning towards women, as guttural humor always is, but not here. Here, all that fades away, and divinity is invoked. Of course, it sounds so ridiculous coming from adolescence mouths and prayer and this coyness about lips and all this talk about saints uh perhaps it's a reprieve from the selfish ambition of adults in the rest of the world perhaps it's to be viewed differently from the degradation that we've seen everywhere else i don't know we can speculate we should speculate but what it is for sure it's very sweet and it's enticing and People have come to love these lines over the years. Romeo and Juliet are not frightened by each other. They're not frightened by the love that they see in each other's eyes. In fact, they run to it. They don't really even care who the other person is. They don't care about their political affiliation, how much money they have, their social status. They're just compelled by something. Of course, Romeo is obviously compelled for a normal way. There's a lot of competing sexuality in Rosalind, but we have to factor that in as well. Not just Romeo, uh, Juliet is all in as well. And uh, she gets her nurse to track down Romeo's bio after he's gone and finds out that he's a Montague, from which we get the lines, my only love sprung from my only hate. And, And then there's another one, prodigious birth of love, it is to me that I must love a loathed enemy. <laughs> she knows unambitious love is doomed in her world. <laughs> uh, well, in this case, uh, as we leave Act 1 and transition into Act 2, we see more of their dream and their love. and uh, Their fate will hit its high point in this second act. Uh, again, one of those things, those less scholarly-minded of us remember from high school, The balcony scene. (laughs) Oh, yes. Shall we take a sneak peek into Act 2? Just a little bit. I think we need to if we're going to finish this play in four episodes because it's a lot of content. But in Act 2, we're going to start with another sonnet, although this one isn't near as interesting as the first one. Again, it's 14 lines. We see the language of love thrown again with the language of death. Now old desire doth in their deathbed lie, and young affection gapes to be his heir. You know, saying that Romeo's old love for Rosalind is in the deathbed, but just invoking death reminds us of the last sonnet where the, that tells us there's actual death coming along. What I find interesting in the second act, and maybe this is why this act appeals to so many, is that we're looking at secrecy also that's associated with love. Like you mentioned before, there's this link with love and intimacy, which involves secret keeping. You aren't special if there's nothing private between two people. 
And of course, there has to be very secret. We can't meet. It's forbidden. As the sonnet concludes, it says, So passion lends them power. Time means to meet tempering extremities with extreme sweet. Uh, I like the idea of power being introduced because I've tried to make the argument that there is a lot of struggle with power in this play. And, uh, but here, what happens, the passion leads them to power. And, of course, the, the excitement of forbidden love is in there as well. And uh, love for Shakespeare, though, is not the sweet teenager Disney variety. I mean, there there is passion. Clearly, there's power. And what we saw in, in the last scene but there is passion. Clearly, there's power and what we saw in the last scene. But the passion and power lead to extremes, which, of course, involves not just extreme love, uh, this exaggerated thing we're looking at, but the other extreme, violence and death. Oh, I agree. I think it's difficult to really define what Shakespeare's saying about love, although... Uh, we will try, but today let's look at power dynamics. I want to conclude our discussion with a couple of more interesting power thoughts to think as we head out for the week. Scene one of Act Two is definitely for the boys who are freaked out by all the emotional stuff that they saw at the ball. And we're going to get another scene with these body boys and the sexual language. Three friends, one bails at the party, leaves the other two, who of course make fun of him, talking about running off maybe to have sex or to not have sex. They have zero sympathy for their dear friend, as of course they wouldn't. Mercutio's lines are particularly sexualized. He says this, If love be blind, love cannot hit the mark. Now will he sit under a medlar tree and wish his mistress were that kind of fruit as maids call medlars when they laugh alone? Oh, Romeo, that she were, oh, that she were an open arse and thou a poppering pear. I mean, this is very sexual, and the medlar fruit is a sexual reference if you're interested, Google it. But here's my point. Romeo has bailed out on this world, and off he goes to find what he will find in a very strong woman, really. Gary, let's finish by reading this most famous of all of Romeo, Juliet's, and Shakespeare's speech. We'll resume talking about Juliet's response and commenting on this speech next week. But here we go. Romeo has run away. He sees light coming out of Juliet's window. He overhears her confession of love to him, and then he's going to jump out to present himself. But soft, what light through yonder window breaks? It is the east, and Juliet is the sun. Arise, fair sun, and kill the envious moon who is already sick and pale with grief that thou, her maid, art far more fair than she. Be not her maid, since she is envious. Her vestal livery is but sick and green, and none but fools do wear it. Cast it off. It is my lady, oh, it is my love. Oh, that she knew she were. She speaks, yet she says nothing. What of that? Her eye discourses, I will answer it. I am too bold. Tis not to me, she speaks. Two of the fairest stars in all the heaven, having some businesses, do entreat her eyes to twinkle in their spheres till they return. What if her eyes were there, they in her head? The brightness of her cheek would shame those stars, as daylight doth a lamp. Her eye in heaven would through the airy region stream so bright that birds would sing and think it were not night." See how she leans her cheek upon her hand. 
Oh, that I wore a glove upon that hand, that I might touch that cheek. Ah, me. She speaks. Oh, speak again, bright angel, for thou art as glorious to this night, being over my head, as is a winged messenger of heaven, unto the white upturned wondering eyes of mortals that fall back to gaze on them, when he bestrides the lazy passing clouds and sails upon the bosom of the air. Oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? Deny thy father and refuse thy name. Or, if thou wilt not, but be sworn my love, and I'll no longer be a Capulet. Shall I hear more, or shall I speak at this? Tis but thy name that is my enemy. Thou art thyself, though not a Montague. What's Montague? It's nor hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man. Oh, be some other name. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. So Romeo would, were he not Romeo called, retain that dear perfection which he owes without that title. Romeo, doff thy name, and for thy name which is no part of thee, take all myself. I take thee at thy word. Call me but love, and I'll be new baptized. Henceforth, I will never be Romeo. (laughs) Well, there is a lot to talk about that's interesting here, and we'll start that again next week. It's Juliet's lines that bring us to our concluding thought for this day. These, if they are nothing, are a beautiful expression of what it means to be young and in love. It's physical, it's exaggerated, it's full of bling, it's definitely chaotic, it's also extremely impulsive. What could go wrong there? Uh, (laughs) Only everything. Well, for most of us, it certainly has, uh, to some degree, and next week we delve deeper into the hasty world of secret love. And we'll see where passion leads them to power. Time means to meet Tempering extremities with extreme sweets. <laughs> All right. On that note, thanks for being with us. Check us out on our uh, Facebook page and our How to Love Lit podcast page.com. Look at us on Instagram. We are out there on the World Wide Web. Easy to be found. Uh, tell your friends about it. And remember, we are studying the books that changed the world and change us as well. Peace out. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.